I am fangirling here because the one and only Emily Oster joins us. She is a three-time best-selling author who basically debunks all of your parenting myths with data. She wrote Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm. We have a great chat and cover so much territory, you do not want to miss this. We talk about how you can worry less about your parenting decisions, how moms can think about deciding their career path to find balance. A career can make you happy. Having children also makes people happy, but there's not like a double happiness boost. So women who work and have children are not as happy as if you added those two happinesses together. But don't worry, we dig in further on how to actually solve that issue. Plus, she answers some of your burning questions. Is breast best? How many times does it take for your kid to eat a vegetable to be open to eat, actually eating it again in the future? Can you drink while you're pregnant? How much time is too much screen time? This is Mom's Exit Interview, the show for moms who want to craft the career and life they want. Each episode, you'll meet inspirational moms across various industries and levels who are working and living life on their own terms. And they'll bring you actionable tips from finance to business development to happiness to crushing that imposter syndrome. I'm Kim Ritberg. I was a burnt out media executive at Netflix, Us Weekly, and in TV news. I wanted a career where I was fulfilled at work, but present at home with my kids. So I started working for myself and I love it, but not every day was easy or is easy. I wanted to explore with all of you how other moms were creating careers on their own terms. They're carving out flex jobs, starting their own businesses. They're taking back control. Join me and make work work for you instead of the other way around. Are you trying to grow your business and you feel like, there's so much to do? Well, don't worry. I got you. I have a few slots left in my brand new life coaching group. Basically, I'll hold your hand and teach you how to attract your ideal client and grow your business with video and podcast. No silly dancing required. (laughs) Unless you like to dance, that's fine. You'll get a system and I'll give you a blueprint to make awesome video. I'll give you all my insider knowledge from working at Netflix, People Magazine, and PopSugar about how to make engaging content that converts leads into clients. It'll have live coaching, weekly Q&A, and Slack support. So check out my site, Kim Ritberg, and let's connect. I love helping you grow your business. I want to share something so cute that I'm doing with my daughter, but I'm actually a little worried if I talk about it's going to go away. But because we're all friends here, I'm going to do it. Uh, I bought this journal where my daughter and I write something in it and we pass it back to each other. So one night mom writes and then the next night daughter writes and they sort of gamify it. So it feels fun to her. Um, I was very worried that she'd be like, oh, this is terrible. Mom, why are you making me do this? But we've been doing it for a week. And even if it ends tomorrow, I at least have a bunch of pages done. And it's really, really sweet. So I ignored the potential rejection. And I just like recommended it gently. And it's happening, which is very cool. And now, seriously, I cannot wait to hear from Emily Oster. She's an economics professor at Brown, best-selling author multiple times. She's written Crib Sheet, The Family Firm, and Expecting Better. She was a Time 100 most influential person. Basically, Emily looks at data behind our choices in pregnancy and parenting, and it helps us make better, more informed decisions and be more relaxed parents. She's a great newsletter called Parent Data on data, pregnancy, child rearing, and whatever else is on the minds of parents. Uh, My husband, also on a personal note, was in a few of her college classes, and I'm basically fangirling over her because she's super smart and also hilarious. 
Because on this show, we talk about how can we organize our careers and lives to have more balance. And we dig into questions like, how do we find the balance that works for us? So I wanted to ask Emily about that. And she says, the data is not conclusive, but Emily says we can learn from some of the data that has been uncovered related to happiness. And from that, ask really specific questions. Women who work are happy with their job. So a a career can make you happy. Having children also makes people happy, but there's not like a double happiness boost. So women who work and have children are not as happy as if you added those two happinesses together. And so it suggests that there is some offset. And I think we see that and we can talk about it almost in the conflict that people have with themselves or with uh, or with others around, you know, how do I balance this? And that balance can be really, can be really hard. So if family makes us happy and working makes us happy, and of course we work because we need money, but if family makes us happy and working makes us happy, but when we combine the two, we're sort of, it's a lot, it's, you know, it becomes, it doesn't become one plus one equals two. What sort of, um, useful questions can we ask ourselves when we're assessing where to go? So if there isn't like hard data, how do we make these decisions in a more thoughtful way? So I, I think the first thing is you can ask, what do I want? And it is hard to ask, what do I want? Because that question is very vague, right? Like, well, what do you mean? What? Like, well, I don't know. I want a pony. Like, <laughs> I want a lot of things. Um, I, I don't want a pony. <laughs> you don't want it. I, I, to be fair, I once wanted a pony and now I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you guys can have snails. Like, I want like, the, an optimal pet is a snail. <laughs> uh, so not a pony. Um, I'm going to try to sell my son on the snail. He's five and begging for a pet. I'm going to actually, we also killed a snail. Sorry. We did also kill a snail. We tried that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a mix. Think of what would you do with a pony? Um, all right. So back. To, so I think it is hard to access this idea of you know what would make you happy. So one of the tools I talk about in in the family firm is trying to to make more concrete some of those ideas. So rather than just saying, well, what would make you happy in a vague way, which for some people they can call up the answer to that, but for many of us it's hard. I say, well, think about it more concretely. You know, what are the three things that are important for you to do every day to make you happy? Or here's a schedule. Show me your best week. Like if it were your, if this were your optimal week in terms of what were you doing every hour of the day, what would that look like? And that exercise can be quite clarifying in terms of both what you want to do, sometimes clarifying in terms of conflict between what you're doing and what you want to do, or conflict between what you want to do and what your partner wants to do, particularly around family time. So in essence, really saying, here's what I want to do every day, and this is what's going to make me happy, sort of forces some of those conversations. Another way to say it is, you know, what what do you want Tuesday to look like? Because your life is pretty much just Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays. And and if you're not happy every Tuesday, that's like a seventh of the time that you're not happy. And and so try to try to make your Tuesday like you like you want. I asked Emily if there was an ideal amount of hours that would make us happier. Of course, it's no news to all of us that here in America, we work much longer work weeks than in the rest of the world. Emily says, while there isn't hard data we can use, this super handy thought experiment and thought process can help us really drill down to make our lives what we want. 
So in economics, we have this idea of optimizing, sort of like optimizing everything that you that you do. And the way that you optimize the the, the sort of central idea in optimization is that if you had one more unit, you would, or one more dollar, you would be willing to, you would be equally happy to spend it on any of the things in your life that you're spending it on. So that's, that's the idea. To put it in the concrete space of time, what this would say, if I give you another hour of the day, if I said, like, I give you another hour, now the day is 25 hours, you get one more hour, you should be equally happy to spend that hour with your family, with your job, you know, at your, at your hobby or whatever it is, like among the tasks that you do, among the things you do with your time, if you had another hour and you said, you know, I'd be happy to put that hour anywhere, then you are optimized because you're saying I'm doing exactly the right amount of these things. And it's not that I'm doing them equally, right? It could be like eight hours of work, three hours with my kids, you know, nine hours of sleep, whatever, but I'm balancing it such that at the, at the margin, I'm equally happy with each And if you told me, like, if you gave me another hour, there's no question, I would definitely spend it at work. Well, it's possible you're not spending enough time at work now. Or if I gave you another hour and you said, for sure, I would spend it with my kids. I miss them so much. I'm definitely like, I would love to spend another hour. Well, that suggests that maybe you're not spending enough time with them. And it's worth looking at the question of, is there a way to get more of that time, even in a world with 24 hours in the day? So looking at like, where is there a deficit? I, by the way, don't you get to use the word concavity enough in conversation. So this it really is doesn't come up that much. It's sort of like, like I'm working on a way to get like trigonometry language in because that's one that I never get to use. I'm going to carry with you. I'm going to be like, oh, I interviewed Professor Emily Oster this week. So I'm really smart by osmosis. Um, but so generally it's, it's about what do you feel like you're missing out on? What do you feel like you need more of and optimizing that and not in a, how I feel this week, but how I feel like on average, like an average day, not the exactly. best, not the worst. Not like when you write in your journal, like today was the best day ever. Or like today is the worst day ever. It's like that average day. And how do you get that average day better? Yeah. And I think also th- trying to move away from thinking about um, thinking about our hours as linking to how much we love something, right? So I, one of the things I've written about is the idea that even though I love my kids infinitely more than I love my job, I still want to have more hours of my day at my job than with my kids. And so the fact that like on average, my child happiness is really enormous, is infinite. And my on average, my job happiness is like, also high, but not infinite, it doesn't mean that I want more time with my kids, in part because the like fourth hour with my kids sort of diminishes in excitement. And the fourth hour at my job is, is, you know, about as good as the first hour. So, you know, there's a there's a little bit of balance there where I think sometimes we we get into a space, particularly as moms, where we can say, well, well, like, if you, you know, if you really love your kids, of course, you should want to be with them all the time. And, you know, that's like, almost to say, well, I only work because I have to. And it, it becomes not okay to say, well, I work because I love my job and I work more hours of the day than I spend with my kids, not because I love my kids less, but because this is the way that I am the happiest. And separating out that those two things about sort of hours and, and overall like utility happiness is part of, part of good decision-making. And I think that speaks to I think we all know plenty of women who are choosing to work who could financially be stay-at-home parents. So it's not necessarily that it's 
only financial based. I mean, a lot of articles are written about the choice and it's a privilege to have the choice. Of course, it is a privilege to have the choice. It is a privilege to have the choice, but obviously we're, there are so many parents who are choosing and having that conversation. So I think, you know, I I think um, that's an interesting point to bring up. So basically you'd say as, as parents are considering, you know, do I work part-time? Do I work full-time? Should I switch to that job with more flexibility? It's hard to measure that. Like you're saying with data, it's hard to, it's hard for data to help make us, help us make those decisions. Yes. And also we should be very expansive about those decisions. So we are so used to thinking about those decisions as, you know, should mom stay home or not? But there are a billion life configurations that you can have. There's mom works part-time, dad works part-time. There's mom works full-time, dad doesn't work. There's mom works full-time, dad works a little bit. There's, there's, there's two moms. Sometimes that's easier because it removes some of the heteronormative aspects of, of sort of the way we think about, about engaging with the, with the labor force. But so the, in making these decisions correctly or in the, in the sort of optimal way is going to require turning off some of that. And so the phrasing that I use in one of the books is, um, what is the optimal configuration of work hours for adults in the household? Which is much longer than like, should I be a stay at home mom? But it captures the like very wide range of like, what is the optimal way to organize the time at work of all of the adults that we have available? And let's just think about that in a way that is not trying not to link it to societal expectations or whatever, just link it to like, what is the thing that's going to make us happy and putting together, you know, we need money to be happy. We need resources. You know, we enjoy our jobs in different ways. We need time with the kid, whatever it is, but think about it in a kind of big picture, not in, in this sort of binary choice space. And then do you think also some of it is, of course, how many hours our full-time jobs are because if you have a double working parent house and let's say on average they're working 40 hours which I don't know if that's average or under plus the commute it's like both parents are sort of working a 45 hour week and then so that is why it's challenging to do the optimal configuration because it is sort of like the school hours don't match up with the work hours and I know that you've written a lot about it it's the financial calculation of what childcare costs, but also the mental calculation of when someone's sick, who's home, uh, who, you know, who is doing the after school stuff, like all of that. So is that, you know, part of it, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's a part of the, that's a part of all of this calculus. And it's a part of sort of thinking about this as a big picture, because the question of like, who, like, how much are we each going to work is completely enmeshed with the question of like, what happens when the kid is sick? And, you know, what do we do on school vacations or at three o'clock in the afternoon? And again, we sort of get back to like, like when, if you sit down with the calendar of the week and you say, you know, this is what I want to have happen. That's an opportunity to say, okay, well, if I want, if we want our lives to look like this, like, then we need to figure out this other piece of it. Uh, And we should figure out this other piece of it before we implement the the plan. We don't just want the other piece of it to kind of assume it's going to work out because like it won't. It's not going to work out if you haven't worked it out. Okay. So, all right. I I have a question because, you know, when we're trying to figure out our optimal life situation, we're sort of looking at an average Tuesday or an average Thursday. Right. But I feel like my husband and I joke that we're like, we have, everything is great until one person's sick. You know what I mean? And then, then the house of cards falls. So 
do you base your life upon the worst case scenario, catastrophe planning, not catastrophe, it's not catastrophic for someone to be sick at home, but do you plan around the what happens when someone's sick? Or do you say, well, that's really an out of um, an out of the ordinary instance. It happens X times a year. Like you sort of really think of it as a mathematical calculation. Cause I feel like most people feel like on a day to day, it's fine. And then as we saw with COVID, when like schools are closed and everything, there's just no answer. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's very tempting to think about the average. I, I think that COVID sort of forced people to think about a little bit more about what is my contingency planning. You know, and in some ways, some of the changes post COVID for at least some set of people have made that contingency planning a touch easier because it's a little bit more acceptable to work from home. It's a little bit easier to work from home. There's like some more pieces of flexibility. Um, but I, yes, I think in an ideal world, there would at least be a plan. I mean, this was a piece of advice that like one of my very close friends gave me when I had my first kid, which was like, decide right now who stays home when the nanny is sick. And like, you know, that was like, she was just like, decide that now. I think even before Penelope was born. She was like, that's the most important thing because in that moment, neither of you will want to stay home. You both are going to think that what you have to do is the most important. And, you know, you you need to figure out that contingency before you have a conflict in the moment. And I mean, a lot of this, I think a lot of, of, of this advanced planning is in part an attempt to avoid conflict with your spouse or to surface conflicts at a moment when you're not mad, uh, when you can can work them out. Because it is true that when you are both trying to achieve things professionally and you also have kids, it's hard for two people to be leaning in at the same time and doing the kind of job they want with parenting. Um, not everyone has that situation, but I think for many people, that's tough. And it is a place that people get resentful. All right. You have hundreds of thousands of people following you on social media and people ask you questions all the time. What is the question you've gotten asked the most and what is the answer? So many of my followers have small kids, right? So I think the the most like popular questions are things about breastfeeding. So can I quit breastfeeding now? That would be like, that would be like a popular, a popular one. Um, and so there's a lot of specifics like that. There is also a very broad class of questions, which is, should I worry about blah? And like blah is everything, you know, should I worry about Zika? Should I worry about, you know, COVID in this particular situation? Should I worry about loss? Some of it's disease. Some of it's, you know, I heard the knife yesterday's question was, I heard the knife blocks have a lot of bacteria. Should I worry about that? Should I worry about phthalates? Should I worry about different kinds of schools? My kid doesn't play an instrument. Should I worry about that? It's just like parenting is like endless series of just worries. And I think particularly because of some of the sort of ways I interact in, in the world, I, that's a lot of what comes that's a lot of what comes in. So what's the answer? If almost everybody's asking you, uh, Emily, dot, 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 should I worry about dot, dot, dot? What's the best way for them to, to make a decision about that specific thing? I mean, usually the answer is it doesn't matter too much. <laughs> like, like, a, like a fair amount of the time. And I think this is a, this is a lesson from that I, I sort of learned myself a lot, actually, in writing Crib Sheet, that a lot of the, the choices we make, particularly in early parenting, um, are, you know, there's a lot of good choices and you don't need to do one or the other thing, uh, to have it be, yeah, like there isn't some one choice that is, um, uh, that is correct. And so I think that's a, that's a sort of important underlying, uh, message in a lot of this, which is like, 
you should do the thing that works for your for your family or like don't worry too much. There's kind of small pluses and small uh, and small minuses. You know, occasionally there are things you should you should worry about. But I, I think in addition to the like mostly you shouldn't worry about this, there's also this really important distinction between like worrying about something and like being able to do something about it. Right. Many of the existential things people worry about are kind of deeply out of your control. So on the one hand, like you could be worried about it. It could be a thing of concern, but it is also not something that you can change. And so distinguishing for us, particularly for those of us, and I count myself in this group who have a fair amount of anxiety just in general, like there's a really, really important moment to be like, I could spend time worrying about this, but it's actually not productive. And so I can think about, like, acknowledge the worry and then try to just not think about it anymore because actually this is not something I can do anything about. So basically, whatever it is that you want to do, do it confidently, because I think what you're saying is it's that nagging and the questioning ourselves, like, should I sleep train? Should I not sleep train? Should I bottle feed? Should I not bottle feed? And then as your kids get older, like, are they too young to cross the street or they went or are they the last kid in the neighborhood to be allowed to cross the street? And but whatever you choose go with it confidently be confident. because it's right. Be confident in your decisions. Be confident. And I think that's part of this, all of this, like we mean a lot of what we've been talking about, I sort of put in this, in this umbrella of like deliberate decision-making and being, you know, thoughtful about the choices you make. One benefit of being thoughtful in those ways is that then you can be confident. So one benefit about being thoughtful about whether you want to work outside the home and, you know, like be away from your kids is that once you have acknowledged like, okay, I thought about this and I made the right choice. It's much easier to, to move forward. And, you know, we all, I mean, like a working mom, like we all have these moments when we're like going to like a work trip and my kids are like, I can't believe you're leaving us. This is my son said the other day, who will take care of us? I was like, your father and the net, like everyone in the house is here for you. You know, he's just, oh, I don't know. He's leave me. And, you know, I think that in those moments, it's easy to be like, oh, you're right. I'm so terrible. But if you know, like this is the right choice, it's much easier to be like, yeah, I don't know. You're just going to have to work it out for yourself. Like, you know, there's some cereal in the cabinet. Enjoy. I feel like it's like when we're reading The Family Firm, these kids are reading like, how to manipulate my parents with love at yes, the exactly. suboptimal moment. <laughs> I, how to really push their buttons. <laughs> like, I feel like there's a little picture book that even is from like from newborns on up is like how to make your parents do whatever that you want with like a really big smile. <laughs> you know, I... My husband studied economics, ironically, with you in college. Uh, true. He hasn't written three books, but that's that's cool. He's really smart also. Um, I think it's helpful because he does see the world in a completely different way than I do. And I think to your point of assessing, he assesses situations differently. And I do think it allows us to make decisions deliberately. We have totally dis- different decision-making mm-hmm. styles. I'm like, let's make a decision. Let's decide it by tonight. Tomorrow's the next thing. And he's like, let's think about it. I'm going to think about it and research it a little bit. And I'm like, Oh, okay, I guess, you know, and then a few days later we come together and then we have a decision and we've both sort of talked it through and he has that. Well, what's the worst case scenario? What happens if we don't, or what happens if we do where that's just not how my brain works. But I find it helps us come together with a decision as I like the word deliberate, you know, it's intentional and whether it's right or wrong. Well, I don't know. We'll find out when our kids on the therapist couch in 20 years, but at least, you know, at least we're not hemming and hawing every day and, and, and worrying about that. And I think the other thing, you know, we were talking about job decision making. 
I was working full time for 15 years. I was really happy with my career. But as my industry got more volatile and I started having kids, I'm like, all right, I think I want to see if I can work for myself and build a career where like, I like it and I'm happy I'm earning good money, but with more flexibility. And I think I sort of stepped in and out of it. I wasn't sure at first, but then like a few years into it, I really made the decision. Absolutely. I'm going to work for myself and I'm going to try as hard as I can to make this work for me because it gives me the flexibility I want. And now when people say, oh, here's a job listing or does this interest you? I'm like, no, I see jobs that look so cool. And I'm like, that would be the best job for me. I would really be good at that job. And I would have fun at that job. I'm like, I really don't want a full-time job and that's okay. And I think like living in that certainty, mm-hmm. I never think, oh, I should send in my resume. I'm like, no, like then I can't get my daughter after school on Thursdays. And like, then I can't leave room for just in case. So I think to your point of, of just really taking the data points and seeing what that, what a Thursday would look like and knowing that has really helped me because I think there's so many inputs throughout life, both from people and articles and everything. And I think it's just helped me live in that in a different state. Yeah. I think it's very easy to hear, hear inputs from others, whether it's about your personal choices or your parenting choices. And if you are not confident to let them kind of worm their way in. And I think that one of the things that the confidence about this delivers is the ability to say, you know, thanks so much for sharing. And then like, <laughs> just, like just move on. You're a parent of two and you're a professor, but you're also at this point, really, you have a business, you know, you have three best selling books, and you have, I'm sure you have speaking engagements and all of these other things. So how in your career path, how has being a parent impacted the decisions you make? And then second, my, my second question will be, how do you balance it now, now that you have not only a full time professor job, but also this business? So yeah. in that so. <laughs> So the the sort of answer to the first thing is like it is only because I am a parent that I have all of these this other thing like my business really started I mean expecting better is now like 10 years old. I sold that book when I was 35 weeks pregnant with Penelope. So like everything that came after that all of the work on parenting, the books, the newsletter, all of this stuff that I'm doing sort of came out of the experience of being pregnant, of wanting to you know, use these tools I was using in my job to speak to my pregnancy and then wanting to write about them. And, and you know, that book kind of catapulted the whole, uh, the whole thing. And the second book sort of really turned, turned it from kind of like a weird hobby into something that was much more of my, of my time. Um, you know, I think over time, balancing work with parenting has gotten easier as my kids have gotten bigger. Um, it's, it, maybe easier is the wrong word. It's gotten more, I have more clarity about how I want to do it. You know, I think early on there was so much time that the kids could have taken and much more conflict for me about, you know, how much time should I give now? They actually have much less time for me. Uh, and, it has become easier for me to think about how much time I want with them. And so that balance has gotten easier. What's gotten much harder is the balance within my work between the kind of being a professor and the sort of doing all of this other stuff, which has become a much bigger part of my professional profile, a much bigger part of like what I do day to day. And that's like something that I am, that that part is very much a work in progress to sort of think about how do I ultimately want that balance to look. I have read that you had said that, you were surprised that actually, as the kids got older, 
you're wanting more time with them rather than in the early years? Like at, at what point have you found being not just a working parent, but a working parent with also this other burgeoning business, which is now, you know, it had been growing, but now is extremely big. How have you thought about, you know, were there times where you're like, oh, I want more time with the kids and how do I get that? Or were there other times where you're like, this is right in sync. I'm getting the time I want. So I think there were, there were periods when my daughter was young um, before I had tenure uh, in which I would have said, I want more time with the kids. Um, and that, you know, some of the time that I'm working, it is like sort of in service almost of FaceTime, but just sort of in service of like trying to get to a place where when I get there, I hope that I will be able to have a different balance. And I think that's, that's a time we sort of, you know, even when my daughter was very, this is such a crazy thing. I'll tell you this like crazy thing we did. So when I was working in Chicago, my daughter was like born in April and I was like back to work, you know, pretty quickly because you, I don't know, you got to like write papers. Um, But that's, we lived like a 30 minute drive from work. We had made like a very poor choice, which was a great choice before we had kids. And then was like a terrible choice because it was horrible traffic. And then traffic in Chicago is like unfathomably bad. And so we were living in this like sort of faraway place and we decided that like we wanted more time. Like I wanted more time with our daughter during the day. And so we like rented an apartment in Hyde Park, which is where the university was like for the summer. We like sublet some students apartment so we could like have our daughter there with the nanny for like six hours a day. So we like see more of her. So when I think about that, it's like, oh my gosh, I really must have wanted so much more time than I was getting to like go through the process of subletting some like dirty student (laughs) to like get a little bit more time. Um, So that was a, I think that was a sort of poorly balanced, um, poorly balanced time as I've gotten older and had tenure and sort of had more control over what I, I do, it's just become much easier to say, you know, here is like, here is the time I feel like I need to carve out. And now that my kids are big that were big-ish, it's become very clear that what they need is like units of concentrated time, not a billion hours, you know, but like saying like, we're going to spend an hour together every day or twice a week or whatever, when I'm just going to pay attention to you, like that's become a much more important part of the way that we, uh, the way that we interact. So looking back, you would have said to your supervisor, Hey, I need to leave once a week or twice a week at X time. And then I will do more research at home or whatever is required to do it. Like, do you feel like looking back, you would have done it differently? I do think I would have done it differently. It's not quite the way you say it because I did not have a supervisor. Like as an academic, you're your own supervisor. Right. And so I, I think the the pressure that I felt was, you know, partially just internal, like I need to, to write these papers. And I think partially was a feeling, correct or not, that like being physically present at work was a way to signal that like I was not just quitting to like be a mom. Um, and so I do wish I had had the confidence at the time to spend more time at home in that first, you know, few months of, uh, of my daughter's life. But, you know, it was, a, I don't know. I mean, hindsight is 2020 or 2040, whatever. It, there's things I would have done differently. Instead of hanging out in a, a, a sublet, sublet with a grateful dead, with a grateful right. dead black light poster in the room. Exactly. That's a story for uh, this time. Um, (laughs) So how do you balance in your life? Like, what are your tips or how do you balance your life between deadlines, teaching, parenting? Like, what are the top, if someone were to say, what's your top advice for balancing them? 
a main thing is don't expect balance every day. Like no day is balanced. Um, and that's just the reality. Um, so I try to be balanced over the course of like a month or a week or, you know, three months or whatever, but like many days are kind of either really concentrated on one thing or really concentrated in another thing. And that's just the, that's just the reality. Um, and, you know, I don't know. The other thing is like recognizing my own limitations. I um, mean, you know, I have a very strong tendency to just like be like, oh, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I actually have a sticker on my desk that says say no. Just like, it's like a little thing I wrote to myself. It's I've taped it on with masking tape. And it's just like, I have to like be better at just saying like, I am too limited to do that. Like, I just don't have the time to do that. It is not consistent with the other parts of the balance that I want to be achieving. Um, but I don't know. I think balance is a, is a kind of a weird word because I think it implies that we're able to achieve something that's just kind of hard, kind of really impossible for almost anyone. It's encouraging also to hear you say those things too. I'm, I'm the same. I'm always like, sure. I, I think I accepted a job swap with another person at a company because I was too quick to say yes. And a month later, I'm like, this new job is okay. But like, I can't believe I said yes so quickly. I should have said, let me think about it. <laughs> like last year I was asked to volunteer for something. And I was like, you know what? It's not the right time. No. Really busy at work. No. And I really was proud of myself because it's not easy to say no, which is weird and no. whatever it is for whatever reasons, it should be easier to say no, but it's not. So that's, that's helpful to hear. Say no. um, yeah. Say no. When everything piles up, what falls to the wayside for you? Sleep. And that's like one of my most like b- terrible habits. You know, there was this period. So I get up quite early anyway. And there was this period, like actually early in the pandemic when there was just so much stuff. There was like the kids were home. So we were, you know, homeschooling and, and then they would like, I would had all these extra job responsibilities for some weird reason. And so it was just like, everything was totally insane. And so I started like getting up at four, like three forty-five, which is like somewhat earlier than I had been getting up before. And my, at some point my husband was like, you have to stop that. Like, that's not a healthy way to address this. And so I've been trying to work on other healthier ways to address it, but you know, it's hard. (laughs) Um, In, in all your questions and research, what's been the most polarizing topics you've covered? Oh my goodness, Kim. Okay. How much time do we have in this podcast? (laughs) Um, So, you know, in pregnancy, like discussions of alcohol for sure, were kind of a, a big, um, a big polarizing nature. Um, you know, when it came to like early childhood stuff, I think sleep training is probably the the most polarizing or the most conflicting, uh, thing. It's interesting because I thought, you know, when I wrote crib sheet that, that breastfeeding would, would kind of rise to the, to the fore there. And I think that, you know, clearly that has some, that can be a quite polarizing topic. I think for whatever reason, in the ways that I sort of the, the kind of ways that I appear about that, it isn't that polarizing, but sleep training, sort of took took over there. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of aspects of parenting that are very polarizing. I think part of what happens is we want to do a good job. Like we want to do a good job and we want our choices to be right. And we want them to be so right that they are right for everyone. And the recognition of this could be the right choice for me and not the right choice for someone else. And the fact that they did a different thing doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with my choice. 
that's just a really hard lesson in parenting. And, and when we don't learn that lesson, it's very easy to decamp into these groups and be like, you're not on my team. I'm on team sleep training and, you know, we're going to win, you know, and it's like, that's not probably not super helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. So it really ends up being this like whole thing. It's so funny. I'm like, I don't really care what someone else does with their kid two states over. I only care about what I'm doing. Yeah. But on the internet, people <laughs> yeah, don't feel yeah. that way, Kim. People yeah. do not feel that way on the internet. They right. care a lot about what you do with your baby. That's You're right. Fair. You're right. I shouldn't tell people that uh, I sleep trained at 12 weeks for both kids. So I won't tell. I won't say that out loud. Okay. I, I mean, you might have said this before, but maybe this is like slightly different. <laughs> do you ever have someone recognize you as a parenting, data parenting expert at a time when you're like, kind of embarrassed, like doing something embarrassing in the supermarket or at a soccer game or whatever. So the main place that people recognize me as is on playgrounds and in the airport. And those are both times in which I am not doing what I view as like a high end parenting, you know, so at a playground, I'm always just on my phone. Because I feel, I feel that children should play alone. Uh, but, you know, my kids are coming over. They're like, why don't you play with me? And I'm like, well, I don't know, Instagram and just different, different stuff. And so I, and people are like, oh, are you, you know, are you parenting experts? Like, yeah, your phone's the best thing. Um, and then the other thing is that people will see me in the airport and like, nobody's kids are good in the airport. You know, you're like, they're yelling, they want sugar, they like, they don't want to sit there. And I'm also like a super anxious flyer. And so it's, it's like, not anxious about flying, but just like anxious about like being whatever travel makes me somewhat anxious. And so it's like, I'm not at my best. And then people are like, Oh my gosh. Ah, it's so amazing. It's like, yeah, hi. They're like, you must be so relaxed. Oh no, I'm not relaxed. You're like, yeah, I read through all the data about flying and here I am super chill. (laughs) Super chill. chill. Um, How much screen time do your kids have? Mm, So my kids um, watch Tell about 45 minutes of TV um, before dinner every day, unless it co- like unless it conflicts with homework. So my older kid like probably watches less than that because she has stuff to, to do, but like they're allowed that time and they get a little bit of app time kind of here and there uh, with, you know, as a reward for, I don't know, different f- for like doing other kinds of other pieces of their homework. So, you know, like a, like a good amount, like a good amount of screen time, I feel. We're doing rapid fire with Professor, Professor Emily Oster, who is the expert on, not parenting, parenting data. Parenting data. <laughs> All right, Emily, rapid fire is breast best. There are some small benefits to breastfeeding early on, but many of the claims that people make about breastfeeding, like it will make your kids smarter or thinner or they'll make them able to fly, uh, those are not supported in the data. Okay, kid can't fly. Sleep training, amazing or terrible? Sleep training does work for making your kids sleep better. It does not have negative long-term impacts on your kids in the data. It can work to improve uh, parent sleep. It is not for everyone. It has to be something that you want to do. Can you drink while you're pregnant? The best data shows that small amounts of alcohol during pregnancy do not seem to negatively impact uh, children. Not everyone will choose to drink during pregnancy, but that is what we see in data that comes from places like Europe, where this is more common. How many times does it take for your kid to eat a vegetable to be open to eat actually eating it again in the future? 
About three. I mean, I think a rule of thumb is to offer a vegetable, you know, three to four times. Um, and that is how kids sort of start to develop a, a taste. So often they won't like it the first time, but they'll like it later. And is dip, I, I read in your book, dips. Dips is the trick for vegetables. Dips are very good for encouraging kids to try vegetables uh, because, yeah, they like the dip and then it gets them sort of accustomed to the flavor. How much time is too much screen time? So screen time is best thought of as a substitute for something else. So uh, so if your kid is spending nine hours a day watching screens, there are a lot of other things they're not doing with that time. If they're spending a half an hour a day or 45 minutes a day while you're cooking dinner, when otherwise you would be screaming at them or they would be getting underfoot and getting in the oil, uh, then screens are a good alternative. It's really about thinking about what is the right balance of time relative to other things that they're doing, not thinking about screens as something that is a good or a bad or has a specific limit. The right age for a kid to have a phone. I am very skeptical about kids and social media. I think the evidence coming out is increasingly not encouraging. So I would really separate the kind of phone part from the social media part there's not a concrete answer to either thing. Most kids are going to end up with a phone by about 12 these days. From my standpoint, neither of my kids has a phone. My daughter has one to call us in emergencies. I think she will relatively soon have one that is usable for other things, but I am not going to let her be on social media uh, for the foreseeable future. What age is the right age for kids to be on social media? I don't think we, I, I don't know. There's Not no data now. No da- there's no, there's definitely that. no data on that. I mean, you know, think about like, it's sort of new and the experiences kids are having are new. I mean, we have data from Facebook launch in, you know, in 2007, which suggests that it increased depression among college students. So that was like the Facebook of 2007. And then there was that Instagram, the survey study about Instagram and eating disorders. Um, in I mean, a lot of these things are really part of what's hard is a lot of these things are really hard to interpret. It's hard to know the causality, right? Is it that like, I'm looking at Instagram all the time because I'm already unhappy or am I becoming unhappy looking at Instagram all the time? I mean, I think that's really difficult to, that's really difficult to separate, but it makes me nervous as a person and as a mom. So the right age for kids to be on social media is age 25. Right. So many amazing takeaways from this chat with Emily Oster. One of them is when you're trying to figure out what you want to do in terms of your career, ask in a very concrete way, ask yourself, what are the three things that are important for you to do every day to be happy? She says, basically, life is a bunch of Thursdays. So look at your best week and say, what's your optimal week in terms of what you were doing every hour of the day? Ask yourself also, If you had one more hour, how would you spend that hour? And you know what? It's totally okay if the answer is at work. And as for things like how much screen time is too much screen time, Emily says think of the other things your kid might be doing instead of screen time. But overall, my biggest lesson from this fantastic chat is that we should all worry less. We should be deliberate around our choices and have clarity around the nitty gritty, not just the theoretical, on how we want our days to look. And when we're making decisions, if we make our decisions with confidence, that can help alleviate the stress around both parenting decisions and your home arrangements. And it'll give us more satisfaction and we'll feel less stressed and less conflicted. I love that. You can get Emily Oster's newsletter on Substack. It's called Parent Data, and you can find her books on Amazon. 
It's all linked out on emilyoster.net and in our show notes. And here's when we feature a real mom, life in its happiest, funniest, or grossest moments. This one is from Jacent Wamala, a licensed marriage and family therapist turned money mindset coach. Hi, I'm Jacent Wamala, licensed marriage and family therapist turned money mindset coach. And the sweet moment that I can think of with my son, who is six months old now, is really the bookends of the day when he wakes up and when he goes to sleep. I say this because, you know, it confirms why I started my business in the first place, to help other women to have the freedom and flexibility financially to live life on their terms. And for me, it's really being present with my children and my family. And so being able to be the first face he sees when he wakes up, smiling, which is so fun, and the last face he sees when he's going to sleep, knowing that he's cared about, um, going to bed in ease and in peace with a routine um, that is consistent really makes me feel like I'm doing something right as far as being a parent personally. And, you know, it lets me know that what I'm doing is worthwhile because I get to help other women be able to create options and flexibility in their lives too. Thank you so much for listening. We want to hear from you. Tell us what topics you want us to cover and what questions you have for upcoming shows and experts. We will read everyone and we will use them. You can find us everywhere. Go to momsexitinterview.com, scroll down to find the contact button, or you can DM me on Instagram at Kim Rittberg, or you can leave your feedback right inside your review in the podcast app. Please follow the show in Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave a review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to share it with people who will find it valuable. It's truly meant to be a resource. And this is Mom's Exit Interview. I'm your host and executive producer, Kim Rittberg. The show is produced by Henry Street Media. John Hollowitz is our editor. And Aliza Friedlander is our producer and publicist.